0: Feral audio
1: the, the Beaver Indian tradition of marriage is that when you're a young person young man or a young woman, you marry an elder uh, who and, and they have a huge amount to teach you um, And a, a young man who marries an elder woman um, you know she's too old to have children, so he's getting his skills as, as a hunter honed. Uh, you know, before he has kids to support, kind of thing. Um, but do so they I, have
2: sexual relationships? Oh, sure, definitely, right. oh, definitely, definitely. Interesting. Definitely, definitely, so. Def- sampled uh, pygmy music there by Deep Forest from their 1992 album Deep Forest. A little controversial there's some uh, question as to whether or not they appropriately credited the uh, the people who were recorded. My understanding is they didn't actually record them they were uh, sampling from the recordings of ethnomusicologists who had spent time in the Congo then known as Zaire. i um, recording folks there. In any case, uh, this is an anthropology-heavy podcast, so I thought I'd throw in a little ethnomusicology for you. Today's guest is Tonya Mills, who is a Harvard-educated anthropologist who did uh, a lot of field work in rural Canada with the Beaver Tribe, She'll describe some of the uh, very interesting insights she gained into uh, herself and um, the world, the spirit world. She's an expert in um, reincarnation among the uh, the people that she studied there. So we talk a fair bit about reincarnation, shamanism, and um, a lot of her personal experiences Moving between worlds as uh, as an academic and uh and someone who who lived with the beaver people and um for a substantial part of her life raised her children among them so fascinating conversation uh today uh doing research for the book I'm writing, I came across uh an interesting podcast and I thought I'd throw in a little excerpt from the podcast it's um it's a guy named uh, Johnny. Oh shit! What the hell's his name? Johnny Johnny Hughes. Sorry, spaced on his name there. Johnny Hughes. He wrote a book called "The Invention of the Teepee," uh, which I've got around here somewhere. And uh, he, he's a fascinating story. I, I tell it a little bit in the book. He um, he went with the BBC to Papua New Guinea to do one of these, you know, travel. Anthropology shows with the insect people of the, I think it's the Sepik Valley in Papua New Guinea. Very remote people, very far uh, into the jungle. Not first contact situation, but uh, very remote. Anyway, uh, spent quite a bit of time with them and got to know them pretty well. They speak English, as do most many people in Papua New Guinea. Um, And at one point, some of the, the leaders said to him, Hey man, uh, are you going to invite us to your world? Because we'd like to meet the queen. And when he got back, to, he said, "You know, I'll check it out." When he got back to England and talked to people at the BBC, they agreed that was a great idea. Why not? Let's have these guys to England, come to England, and it'll be a whole, a whole nother documentary, right? Um, and he was. Quite afraid that uh, they were going to come to England and sample the wonders of the modern world and never want to go back to their primitive life in the, the forests of Papua New Guinea. Well, let's listen to, uh, to Johnny talk about what this experience was like.
3: And then I took so the other guys and um, uh, one of the girls down to a town on the seashore, Western Supermare. Um, And we lived... It was basically the sort of working-class experience, I suppose, of Britain. So we lived with a typical family, in a typical house, in a typical town. Um, And that was really interesting because, very quickly, the the guys um, were just fascinated about our work-life balance because over there, they'll spend... In a week, they'll spend maybe 20 hours in total... Um, collecting food, going hunting, etc., just doing the sorts of things they need to do. The rest of the time, they spend it with family, um, you know, organizing social lives. It's leisure time. Carving paddles, yeah, Yeah. exactly, leisure time. Um, Whereas Mark, who was the, the father in this family, of course, he'd leave about half seven in the morning, sort of throw his breakfast down as quickly as possible, put his coat on as he's getting out the door, not come back home till six or seven, Hardly see the kids at all, or his wife, and the guys were just amazed. They, they were, why are you doing this? Why are you going out every day, not seeing the people that you really care about? Doesn't make any sense at all. And of course, Mark had to try and explain. Well, it's because I have to pay for my house that we live in, and all the food and things. Um, and and they said, well, how long are you going to be doing this to pay off your house? And he said, well, twenty-five years. <laughs> and uh, they looked at him absolutely astonished and said, well, it, you know, it. If I want a house in my village, I ask all the fellas, can we build a house? We all get together. It takes three weeks. And they build a house, and that's where their family lives. And at that point, we're all thinking, yeah, you're right. We've got this kind of wrong, really. (laughs) That's right. What are we doing?
2: (laughs) That's a recording of uh, Johnny Hughes on a show called uh, APM's The Story, I believe. There's a link to the whole Uh, interview at johnny's website johnnyhughes.com that's no h just j-o-n-n-i-e hughes h-u-g-h-e-s.com you can hear that entire interview he also had an interesting um, article that he wrote uh, for salon.com if you google the uh, what was it the uh, the hunter gatherer who facebook friended me i think was the title Or if you just uh, Google his name and Salon, you'll see the article. It's another article about that uh, particular visit to London. Anyway, I won't uh, regale you with tales of of the book, but that's uh, the section I'm working on right now. The the question of what are we doing and why? And why is it that the hunter-gatherer lifestyle is depicted as having been one of constant struggle? what kind of propaganda is that <clears throat> what's going on there anyway uh this is a fantastic episode i hope you enjoy it as much as i do um i'm feeling kind of weird about the 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 sponsorships and stuff and i don't know i don't know we'll see what happens with that but i'm kind of feeling like it's it's almost not worth it you know for a couple hundred bucks a month or whatever i'm getting if i feel i feel uh like, I'm not all that into it. The ones I'm into are uh, Shore Design T-shirts. And that's love. That's not money. Uh, Bennett's fantastic. His company's fantastic. The shirts are fantastic. I wear Cassie. <laughs> I mean, if you ever see Cassie, if you're in Portland and you see someone walking down the street who looks like her, if she's wearing a Shore Design T-shirt, that's your confirmation right there. That woman, her entire wardrobe is Shore Design T-shirts at this point. Um. Yeah. So, anyway, Sure Design T-shirts—they're great. Go check them out. Go to their website, buy their stuff through my website if you wanna. If you wanna sport one of these uh, civilized to death shirts, or a paleo modern shirt, or a tangentially speaking shirt, which is designed in the Hunter S. Thompson, Ralph Steadman kind of look, uh, they're all great. They're cool, and of course, the classic Sex at Dawn shirts with the uh, that funky uh, mandala design. Mom's standing by, ready to send them out to you. Thanks for the orders that have come in, and uh, you know, Christmas is coming up. I guess it's autumn now, fall. Yeah, things are changing fast. I'm headed down to San Francisco uh, Monday, no Sunday. Uh, I'm doing a show with Duncan Trussell Tuesday evening, uh, the twenty, the thirtieth. I think it is the last, the last night of September. I'm doing a live podcast show with Duncan Trussell in San Francisco, and then the next night we're doing it again in Portland. <clears throat> it's going to be strange, i am got to say, because I don't really understand what a live podcast recording entails. I mean, I've done a hell of a lot of podcasts, but I don't know, I'm just having trouble wrapping my head around the fact that people are going to pay money to come and sit in the audience to watch us have a conversation. I I don't I don't know. I was thinking about it last night and and it's a funny funny relationship I've got with Duncan because I've known him for probably 3 years now and uh I consider him a close friend. I think we know each other pretty well. We've had some uh some very deep conversations over the the past few years. But what's funny about the relationship is probably 80% of the time we've spent together has been in front of live microphones. It's just, I, I don't have any other friends like that. You know, with Joe Rogan, it's it's higher than that, but you know, I'm not nearly as close to Joe as I am to Duncan. But uh, it's just strange to have these friendships that are so predominantly public in this way. Um But certainly in Duncan's case, no less authentic a friendship, you know? I mean, if I really needed help of a friend, I wouldn't hesitate to call Duncan. So it's not a bullshit friendship. It's not a, you know, uh, it's not an act. It's not something that we put on for the cameras or the microphones or whatever. And yet, strangely, so much of it has taken place in that context. It's weird. I don't know. It's like... It's like making love with a porn star, and like you are always on camera, but you actually are making love. I I don't know. Maybe Duncan wouldn't like that (laughs) that metaphor. I'll ask him about it on stage. Maybe I'll I'll bring this up on stage. Anyway, Sure Design t shirts, check them out. Check out the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. It's my favorite podcast. Yeah, probably including this one. It, it's, uh, I'd rather listen to Duncan than listen to myself, but there you go. Anyway, uh, hope you enjoy this conversation with Tonya Mills. Thanks as always to Carsey Blanton for the theme song, and, uh, I'll see you next week. All right, I'm sitting here in the, uh, the empty restaurant of a hotel in Vancouver. You might hear the, the cheesy Vegas-like music in the background, but I'm with a very un-Vegas sort of person, if I could say that. And I mean that in the most positive way possible. I'm here with Dr. Antonia Mills, uh, who has a, um, a PhD in anthropology and child development from Harvard. Is that right? Uh, not that we're impressed by that it's just another college just another school <laughs> i always joke i say if i if i had gone to a first rate university for my graduate school. I never would have met Stanley, because oh. he's teaching at Saybrook, mm-hmm. who uh, opened up so many doors for me. Mm. Stanley Kribner, of course, is a friend that uh, Tony and I have in common. Um, uh, I don't know how long you've known Stanley.
1: Oh, well, I've known his work forever before. Uh. But I've, I've known him. I met, met him a long time ago. And, and uh, for a while, some time back, I was on the Board or whatever it's called of the Society for the Anthropology of Consciousness, right. and, and so I proposed that we have him as the keynote speaker, mm. and he accepted. And
2: so he, he's a great speaker. Oh, of course. I've yeah. I've seen him. Uh, we were talking before I turned on the the equipment. Uh, we were talking about some of the trips I've taken with Stanley. The first was to Brazil.
1: Wow, that's what turned me on to anthropology. Oh, really? Like going to Brazil.
2: Ah. Well, as you know, Stanley's sort of the godfather of Brazilian parapsychology. He's more famous in Brazil than he is in the United States. Mm. Mm. And uh, (laughs) he's just, he's incredible. I I remember the first place where he was giving a talk, and there were probably 300 people showed up for this talk. It was uh, very well attended. And... uh, I couldn't find him Ten minutes before He was supposed to go on I couldn't find him And the people With the organizers Were nervous And they were like Do you know where Dr. Kribner is And I I don't know I'll look And I I Sort of gave up, and I, I had to go to the bathroom. I went into the bathroom, and I heard him. He was sitting in one of the stalls in the men's room, practicing his talk in Portuguese.
1: Oh my goodness! I,
2: did, is he, I didn't know he spoke Portuguese. Well, that's the thing. Neither neither did the organizers. They had wow. set up uh, translators and everything. Uh-huh. And Stanley came out, and he gave his talk in Portuguese. That's and,
1: incredible! Yeah, yeah. Wow, I'm impressed.
2: He's a hard worker. Mm. He he mm. makes it look easy, but mm, yeah,
1: that's amazing.
2: Well, uh, the The reason I I talk about Stanley so much is I've had him on this uh, program several times, Mm -hmm. two, three times at least. And uh, in fact, our last podcast, we were driving down the I 5 from San Francisco to Los Angeles and we did it in the car. And that was an interesting podcast. Wow. Yeah. So, anyway, the reason I really wanted to talk to you is. When Stanley heard that I was in Vancouver, he said, well, you should really talk to my friend Antonia. (laughs) She does this amazing research um, with First Nations people, and uh, maybe you should explain it, but the the thing that really uh, captured my interest was your um, work looking into spirituality and reincarnation among uh, First Nations people. Mm -hmm. Has your work... Has all of your field work been in Canada, or have you been elsewhere?
1: I have also had the very good fortune of going seven times to India uh, oh. to study reincarnation there it was Ian Stevenson who uh,
2: I was who, going to ask you about Ian Stevenson, <laughs> so you've worked with him
1: oh yes well oh, my. i i the way I got into the whole uh, reincarnation thing was from the the Beaver Indians, the saw in northeastern BC, mm-hmm. and when. I first went there in 1964. I had just graduated as a you know from Harvard Radcliffe, but had married a grad student mm. who, at at Harvard, and and he wanted to do his field work with the Beaver Indians because he'd met them previously uh, when he'd gone to help friends uh, homestead up in that area, and he was really impressed with them. So we went back uh, for in '64 and were adopted by. Um, a couple, uh, husband-wife elders who were medicine people, and and that very first summer, we we discovered they, you know, we met the the. They have a, a living prophet, a prophet. They had a series of prophets, and he was the last one. Very, 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 very impressive, and but they they also introduced me to to reincarnation, which I had not known was part of the worldview of. The indigenous people of North America and I was really impressed by, by all that they taught me um, that very first summer there was a uh, medicine man in his 90s who had a heart attack and we were the only people that had a vehicle and they asked if we would take him to the hospital in Fort Nelson 70 miles north and we said yes and we, we took him up there Yes, he'd had a heart attack, and the doctors put him in the hospital, but no way did he want to stay in in the hospital. He was sitting bolt upright on his high hospital bed, spitting his snooze into the the can on the floor. But so he, he said, you know, take me back. So we took him back to the Prophet River Reserve, and he had another heart attack, and his daughter did... Who was six years old? His youngest daughter; she was something like six. Did a, a you know healing ceremony on him. There were you no. Know, there were at least you know there were three medicine uh, elderly and medicine people who could have done a ceremony. I was really impressed that that it was his six-year-old daughter. And afterwards said to Sam and Jean Saint Pierre, who had adopted us, mm, "How do, how does someone?" So young know what to do, and they they said it's from who she was. She's brought this this back.
2: Oh, she brought the healer. the knowledge.
1: Yes, from another life.
2: Uh uh-huh.
1: And and then when a, a child would be a baby would be born, uh, sometimes it was the children who would tell me. Sometimes it was adults who what elder had come back. So I was really you know impressed by this, and we did a lot more field work. We came back the whole year of '65. 66 um, with them, and then went back many, 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 many summers after that. But so I, I kept on learning more about that. And so when I finally got around to writing my PhD thesis four children later. I.
2: Four children later. <laughs> mm-hmm. So your husband was working on his PhD at this point, in the mid-60s. The, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you waited until you'd had the children, then went back to school?
1: No, I was, at 64, I was already admitted into the Harvard grad school. Uh, um, you know, I had an, an IMH uh, doctoral fellowship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh. But I actually, I, I don't know if you want, I... Withdrew from that after at one point to, to tell you the truth, uh, I had my my Ph.D. oral exam uh, the last year. You know, we just before we moved from, from Cambridge to Vancouver, where where my husband had been given a job at UBC, uh-huh. and uh, the morning after my Ph.D. oral exam, I had my first. Baby, really? Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Talk about juggling! Wow. Woo-hoo.
1: And and then we, we went up, you know, to to the Beaver Indians after we arrived in Vancouver, and oh, I was just so grateful for so all the instruction they gave me about how to raise my baby and, and make sure that his his body and soul didn't separate. there, they have all the this immense amount of knowledge and concern that. You know, it's beyond anything we learn as a Westerner. And um, then, when my my second child was was born, uh, I think before she was born, two years later, I had I written my well, oh, definitely it was before because I wrote my the publishable paper. That was one thing that was one of the requirements. Mm-hmm. And and I sent it to my. Uh, thesis supervisor, and he said it was very beautiful and should be published, but it was not the distorted monster a thesis was supposed to be, he was teasing, but um, uh, but being pregnant with my second child a distorted monster was the last thing that I wanted to <laughs> produce and uh,
2: well said and uh, yeah. you
1: know it was it was written from a um, sort of personal perspective etc cetera, etc cetera. and and then I was hearing about the politics in the university from my husband and everything so I just silently withdrew from the PhD program hmm. but then when my husband left me for a grad student when I had three small children uh I wrote my supervisor, John Whiting, who was, you know, big in, in child development of anthropology, and said, could I be reinstated? And, and he said, wrote back, oh, take a, a department meeting. Uh, but then he wrote back and said, well, we had the department meeting, and everybody unanimously said yes, and they're sorry you ever withdrew. Hmm. <laughs> so then I...
2: Well, that must have been somewhat comforting. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you're marriage is going in one direction to have oh. a community invite you back in with yes. such yes, support. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. It's very that, important. that was
1: very nice. And, and you know, I, re- I had my heart set on the fourth child, so I remarried, had the fourth child. and But I wrote the, the thesis on the Beaver Indian Prophet Dance and Related Movement Among North American Indians. And it included, I sort of spelled out what I saw as the Five tenets of their spiritual uh, worldview, and reincarnation was one of them. And in the thesis, I looked to see whether the First Nation in the ten culture areas uh, with the best literature on their spiritual beliefs also had those those five tenets. And one of them was reincarnation. What, what are the other four? Whoa! One one was about shamans, of course. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm i have to reread my thesis.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a dirty question. If you ask me anything about my thesis, there's very little I'd remember. Well, isn't and it that was funny? Only I thought I
1: should look that up, but I haven't. I could, I could look it up and tell you
0: by
2: email yeah. you. Or well, whatever. they'll come out during the conversation mm-hmm. as we go. Mm-hmm. You were talking about uh, the, the, your professor joking about your thesis. It reminded me of something Stanley did with mine. <laughs> uh, he was the chairman of the committee mm-hmm. of the, you know, for my dissertation and uh, in the earlier early drafts yeah I'm I'm a writer before mm, a scientist excellent. my BA's in literature and wow. I love writing and reading oh. and that's oh. my thing oh. and um uh and so it was, when I was writing the dissertation it was about um human sexuality in prehistory
1: in prehistory whoa. right
2: so which is what this book ended up being right Wow. but um y- you know it's it's inherently interesting, funny, you know, playful kind of material. So every time I tried to get creative... He'd cross it out, and in the margin, he wrote, save it for the book.
1: <laughs> save it for the book. Oh, that's cute. That's cute. And, and my, my background's somewhat similar in that I grew up in Iowa City, Iowa, which has the- Oh, the, the writer's vert- program. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and my parents were really, my dad was, mm, founded the American Studies program at the University of Iowa, but was oh, really? really good friends, like my, my, one of my earliest, you know, one, Chuck Wells, not- Earliest, but childhood memories. It was uh, Robert Penn Warren when I was wow. three. He was so kind to me, and mm-hmm. and um, and uh Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Hardwick and all that and
3: wow you know, real he, classics he, and we
1: really he, uh, Robert Lowell Cal told my mother that she could have been his sister, which she she was delighted to hear that and then then when I was at you know Harvard Radcliffe as an undergrad, um, I ran into him in a at a Shakespeare play uh, mm. uh, and when I was my freshman year and then he he asked me if I would be the nanny for their daughter, Harriet. Um, so I was uh, uh, the nanny in Back Bay, Boston the the next you know summer between freshman and sophomore. And the next year, he was giving a lecture tour of South America. So I got to be the nanny on that lecture tour. On the tour? Yes. Oh, nice. And at the mouth of this river in, in Brazil, at Recife, I just felt the strength of all the indigenous cultures steaming up and down the river and I thought, this is what I want to be learning about and so I went back I'd never taken a course in anthropology but I went and, and asked if I could switch into anthropology and they said, sure, you'll have to take a lot of courses your last
2: two years, but
1: we'd welcome you Wow! so that's how I got into anthropology a summer,
2: summer gig as a nanny that's <laughs> fantastic <laughs> did you happen to, to work with uh, Richard Evans Schultes at all at Harvard? no do you know the ethnobotanist? No, I don't. Uh, he was uh, maybe he wasn't there. Six.
1: I was there. I, as I an undergrad, 60s. I was sixty, sixty-four.
2: Yeah, uh, maybe maybe he'd retired by then. He he did most of his field work in the forties and fifties. He was he was a very interesting man. He he. he He was sort of like a straight arrow personally, Mm -hmm. but he um, one of the areas he specialized in is uh, psychoactive plants. Wow. He did his um, doctoral dissertation on the use of peyote by American, North American, Mm -hmm. Indian people. Mm -hmm. And um, then he he discovered, uh, he did a lot of work with ayahuasca and Mm -hmm. um, discovered all sorts of stuff uh, in the Amazon. He was there... I know he's there during World War II and uh, wow. and after wow. early, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote. Uh, there's a great book by Wade Davis. Oh, I know Wade Davis. Yeah, mm-hmm. you would. Yeah, mm-hmm. isn't Wade Davis is based up in in, in BC? Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And he took. It was really neat. He got a an honorary PhD from UNBC where I teach uh-huh. a couple of years ago, and strangely, he connected me with my eldest son that who was you know. Born the the morning after my PhD orals, and but hugely mm, impacted by by the Beaver Indians, uh, he m- made the connection that uh, um, I was his mother. He had taken a river rafting course from my son. Really? Yeah, and was really impressed by the depth of his spiritual. Search and understanding and everything. Yeah. His wife had left him and his two kids for an alcoholic drug dealer. And so...
2: Wade's or your son's? My son's. Oh, oh, I'm sorry.
1: Well, so am I. But I had had to walk him, talk him through that because he was devastated. Of course. Uh, and, And somehow or other Wade made this connection even though we have different last names oh yeah really yeah i don't know how that happened but i've
2: never met uh wade personally by the way for listeners who don't know who we're talking about wade davis i guess his first book was about voodoo uh what was do you remember what that Mm -hmm. was called uh it's a fantastic book it's about uh haitian spiritual traditions and, and voodoo um Something about the horsemen, uh, I don't remember. But anyway, the, the book, uh, he's a, a very well-known anthropologist, uh, works with the National Geographic Society. I think mm-hmm. he was anthropologist in residence for a while oh, with he's them.
1: Still, he's still that. Is he you still? still major. Because
2: I know, if someone told me he's coming to UBC uh, as of this year or next, oh, and, and he, he's based, I, and do you know Andrew Weill? No, uh, he's I a oh, no. Yeah, he's a, a physician who works with. Um, he's all. He was at Harvard, uh, studied the botany, mm-hmm. and he and Wade Davis both uh, studied under Richard Evans Schultes. Oh, uh, okay. So that's the connection okay. between oh, that's them. That's
1: interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Wade Davis also, um, ha- what was the name of the anthropologist? Another anthropologist who was major, major, major in his life. Who I took courses from. To mm-hmm. who started. Um, cultural uh, survival
2: oh I don't know Richard Richard Lee was at Harvard wasn't he he
1: was but but he was there briefly Mm. um I'm not somehow when his name comes back to me I'll tell you (laughs) okay
2: yeah yeah Yeah. anyway uh, Wade Davis wrote a beautiful book with a foreword by Andrew Weil about Richard Evan Schultes it's Mm. called One River it is a fantastic book
1: about the life
2: of this oh he's a really good writer Mm -hmm. and and speaker very interesting guy Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so let, let's go back to Harvard now Your life story is so interesting I don't want to get off the tangent too much Although the name of this podcast I don't think I mentioned Is Tangentially Speaking So feel free to lose the focus at any point Okay, all right? tangents are good <laughs> Tangents are great Did you happen to know um, Shostak? Marjorie Shostak Who was at Harvard She wrote um, Nisa do you know what I'm talking about? I'm yeah, I sure read if the, the book
1: and everything, but no, I didn't know her.
2: Yeah, she died. She tragically died of breast cancer, very young. Wow. Uh, shortly after finishing her PhD. Wow. Wow. And there's a book called um, "Returning to Nisa," I think it's called, where she wow. goes back to the. The Kalahari, and uh, after she knows she's got terminal cancer and sort of checks in for a last time with these people. My goodness. It's a very, oh my God, I haven't cried that much reading a book probably my whole life. It's amazing. Very moving. It seems like they've turned up the Vegas music they have it, it, it just got louder in my headphones yes, for sure maybe
1: we're going to have to talk louder we could ask them to turn it down I don't
2: know <laughs> kill that horrible yeah. music mm. <laughs> <laughs> people people are listening to this podcast saying I did not sign up for the smooth jazz what's going on <laughs> Um, so did you raise all of your children in in this environment with the beaver Indians?
1: My, uh, my fourth child, uh, by my, my second husband, was raised less in that environment, but but he's gone up there with me and just was really impressed by the beaver Indians as mm-hmm. well. But that was more as a young adult, right Yeah, right. yeah, but but my other children were all hugely impacted. Yes, okay. so after juniper was born, uh, we began my husband and I discovered the Gulf Islands and my husband bought an old gill netter, and so we started spending more time around the, the Gulf Islands oh, here. Nice. And less with the beaver Indians but mm. but but they've all been impacted by the beaver Indians in one way or another.
2: All right, let's take a break. I'm gonna go ask if they will turn down the music because I'm finding it very distracting, <laughs> distracting I, yeah, yeah sure. just. Want all right. Well, I'm told by the management that the uh, the music cannot be turned down. because <laughs> It was kind of funny. She said because she needed to keep the restaurant lively. And I pointed out that there are absolutely no people here except us. <laughs> but at least now that we know the restaurant is actually open, we can get uh, something to drink. So that will be coming shortly. Um, we were talking about raising children in this environment, which I, I think is... It sort of ties together several uh, very interesting ideas. Your expertise in shamanism, and I know uh, that shamans are often described as people who are able to move between worlds. And here you are, moving between worlds raising your children in several different worlds simultaneously you're sort of giving birth to shaman in a way <laughs> is it shaman or shamans i've never really worked that I think, out i
1: think it's plural and in, in shaman and shaman can be the the shaman can well the
2: shaman can be women and they often yes, are of at, course yes yeah. for sure but no one says sha women do they no <laughs> Healers. Yeah. They call them witches. There's there's the, hmm. the nastiness inherent in the language. Right. Right?
1: Oh, right, right. And we never spell it shaman, M-E-N, do we?
2: Well, that, I, I do sometimes, but oh, I'm good. not sure if that's... Correct. Right. I, I don't know. Shaman. Anyway, th- this idea of moving between worlds, I mm-hmm. find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife, who I'm very sorry I couldn't come to meet you, is a psychiatrist. Oh, and, wonderful. But I, I often joke, I say, she's really a shaman Good. who got an MD. Great. Because she hates giving people drugs. She doesn't like, Good. you know, Good. all the antipsychotics and all that, you know, at At most, she sees them as a useful tool to get someone through a crisis, but Mm -hmm. never as a chronic. You know, uh, uh, and she's amazing. Uh, You know, she was raised in Mozambique. She's an Indian family Mm -hmm. raised in Africa. Wow! Half her, one side of her family's Muslim, the other side's Hindu. Wow. So she's like at this nexus of so many different right, worlds. Right. Oh, this is neat. And at 13, she was sent off to Portugal to escape the civil war in Mozambique. So then she's in another world. Wow. She goes to school up there, goes to medical school, uh, then goes back to Mozambique and works for seven years in the bush, driving a pickup truck from village to village as the only medical doctor in an area the size of Connecticut, uh, treating everything. Wow. With no money. Right. Right, because it was a Marxist revolution and all this. So she's got, um, she's running a little clinic, and she's got the patients running the clinic themselves, essentially. Wonderful. A garden where they're growing herbs that she uses to treat diseases. And, and infections. The, the typical, probably the ones that the Mozambique people know to our work. Right, but yep. what's very interesting is wherever we go, she... You know, walking through a forest, she'll look at things and say, "Oh, see that? That's good for infections, mm-hmm. and that. Oh, you can use that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, f- to uh, induce a delivery." And this is mm-hmm. she's wow. never been in this part of the world that's before, awesome. but there's some way that's she awesome. knows these oh, things.
1: That, that's those are very important things.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I'm very interested in, in in this idea of moving between worlds and and the power and the challenges that come <laughs> with that. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, your experience with with i mean I, I, I want to know everything your experience yourself moving between all these worlds, but also as a mother raising children mm-hmm. at this point where mm-hmm. worlds connect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what
1: wh- well, it was amazing several things can't come to mind yeah. immediately three things what but, such uh, an
2: unfocused question yes, i'm sorry yes, yes.
1: Um, one one the fr- is that uh, my son when he was very, very young, began talking uh, about all these battles he'd had with bears, and uh, we'd say, "Now, his Beaver Indian name was Abali. Now, Abali, it's 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 fine to make up stories, but you should let people know when it's something that's happened to you and when it's something you're making up." And right. he would look kind of puzzled, and then he he'd go on talking about. It. Battles with bears, and it, it was kind of crazy that it, it didn't quite sink in initially that that this was a previous life memory kind of thing. Um, but he, you know, he would tell it to strangers. He would tell it to anybody. Um, you know, when he was when he was about two years old, uh, but. You know, later as I got more and more into the reincarnation stuff I thought oh yeah this is, this
2: makes is, sense. Yeah this yeah. is a,
1: a previous life experience that he's he's recounting
2: And did he have any scars or, or birthmarks or anything?
1: He had uh, a birthmark at the back of his neck back here huh. uh, when he was born.
2: Because I know some of Ian Stevenson's work, he talks about how birthmarks sometimes oh, yes. correspond to oh, yes. the injury that caused the death in yes. the previous and life. I've, I've, yes, yeah.
1: And I've documented a lot of cases like that, both among North American people. Uh, British Columbia, uh, First Nations people, and in India, uh, Ian also asked me if I would go and do do reincarnation research in India, and I said, for
2: sure. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I read, uh, what's the name of that big, white, dry book that he published? (laughs) (laughs) 20 Cases. Yeah, 20 20 Mm -hmm. Cases Mm -hmm. Suggesting Reincarnation.
1: I don't think it's that
0: dry.
2: (laughs) Well, my—I've never met him personally, uh, and so you can tell me whether I'm off the mark or not. But I've always felt that um, he was intentionally a, a very far, you know, sort of like the dissertation thing where they told me save the fun stuff for the book. <laughs> you know, he's a psychiatrist. Is that right? He, he teaches he, at UVA.
1: He—did he, you know that he's deceased? Oh no, I didn't. Yeah, so no, the sorry. late Ian Stevenson. Oh, okay. Yes. And he taught. Uh, um, he was the chair of the psychiatry program at right. the University of Virginia for, for for many years, and he. But he was into documenting reincarnation. Yeah.
2: and talk uh, about moving between worlds.
1: Really, really, right? really. Head really. of the
2: department at a major medical school. Yes. Where you really need to be respected by your peers. Absolutely. And simultaneously, for decades, he was doing this work on reincarnation. Yes.
1: Well, did you know that he got gifted a million dollars by Chester Carlson, the man who invented the the copy machine, which is interesting because reincarnation
2: is oh, like I a different kind of copy. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. And so when,
1: when he was gifted that, that money. For
2: the research. Yes. Uh-huh.
1: In reincarnation. Yeah. He, he ceased He actually sort of stepped away from being the the chair of Uh uh, the Department of Psychiatry and founded the division of, for a while it was called parapsychology, but that that was not a very popular title. So then it became uh, the division of personality studies and... then even since since then, it's become the, the division of perceptual studies, Dops D O P S. And if you you know if anybody wants to Google Dops at UVA, they'll find all of his work and and uh, links to publications, mm. all kinds of things like that. But um, you know, it was remarkable that this man with a strong, strong, strong reputation in in the world of psychiatry, you know. Chose and wanted to to document um, cases showing, in order to demonstrate to psychology and psychiatry that this is something that needs to be taken seriously.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then he hired. Did he have a personal experience that led him into this research? Do you
1: know? He he did, but uh, since it happened under the influence of. I think it was psilocybin. Uh, He never talked about it. He never Mm. ever revealed. He revealed that he'd had an experience, but he never shared it ever, ever, Mm. ever. I Mm. think I think he could well have been William James. If you notice the similarity of their writing styles, even.
2: Really, I and know,
1: and, know. and interest, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. He was actually also raised by a mother who was into Theosophy, so it was oh. a concept that 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 he was aware of. Unlike most northern people, you know, raised in North America, yeah. uh, he was born in 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 England, but his uh, parents moved to Canada when he was, you know, just very young. Mm. And uh, but but he was aware of anthropology as as, a, as something that Theosophus took very seriously just from reading his mother's library hmm. as a kid he was you know an, a voracious reader and and had some health issues um, as a, as a, a child which meant that he spent more time at home rather than out doing athletics and stuff right yeah as his elder brother is also an md um, but didn't suffer from that kind of mm, Mild disability. I, I was not aware. Ian, Ian Stevenson hired me. I was at the, the DOPS, at the Division of Personality Studies, for for six years, uh, and I was not aware uh, that he had to lower this this thing into his lungs uh, every morning, you know, twice, and every evening to clear, you know, the. His, his whole breathing apparatus really? oh yeah, which God. is not which goes against the gag reflex it's not an easy thing to do yeah. but this was from this con- I think the word is congenital I mean it was something that he had from early
2: right. childhood right.
1: this medical condition which meant that, that one, one of the other things that he was into was the sort of psychology of that kind of, of ailment and, and things mm. like that as well yeah,
2: it's so interesting—the the hidden motivations, the the sort of secret suffering that causes that that provokes so much interesting research and yeah, really,
1: you know, really. And I don't know if you want to put it into your podcast, but um, well, there, there's so there was my, my my sons. There there are three things that I was thinking about. Uh, there was my son's speaking from that kind of point of right. view. Um, oh, there's even a fourth one, but you can, oh, you can edit it out as much as you want. Um,
2: Give it all to us.
1: And right. there's there's one thing of with my second child, but I would want to ask her if she was willing to have it shared. She oh. might prefer that it not be. Okay. But when she was two years old, another uh, medicine person at uh, the the... Profit River Reserve recognized her as being his wife, who had died in the flu of 1918 after World War II, that big flu that came through, um, as well as every single other person in the Profit River community died, but Jumbi uh, at the the and uh, he was devastated. He was just devastated. Uh, it was you know. Children of all ages, elders, everyone, every single person in the community died, and he had it was winter time, so he had to to burn trees to thaw the the ground to make up a, a, a grave. mass grave and and as he described it, he wanted to die too and yes. as, but that he said something like a feather came down and then stopped and told him. It's not your time to go your job is to go and find the people that that may be remaining from other the other communities uh, that have survived from this flu so he actually went and found one nine-year-old girl who was the only person left from her from her community and she had been kept alive by being adopted by wolves and he brought her back to human society. I knew that woman well, God. yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's, whoa. Um, but he recognized my daughter as being his, his wife come back. Um, and I'm not sure that she wants this to be on, on the air, who uh,
2: know okay. you you yeah. ask her and just let me know I'll, sure. if not i'll cut it out if sure. if she's okay with it we'll, sure. we'll leave it yeah uh, do you know how he recognized her? was it something she said or the way she moved okay. or that that's, that's more personal
1: that's that's part of why she probably doesn't want ah, okay. to uh, okay. I mean, I can tell you if you you know you can not put this on the show, sure. but when she was two years old, you know he came into our cabin in Prophet River and um she was in, in, you know, the, the age of um, sir, sir, toilet training, so she wasn't wearing a diaper or anything. And she lifted up this, you know, long dress I'd made for her. I remember the dress perfectly. It, it was, it was nice, nice kind of flat colored velvet, uh, and showed him her vagina. And I was surprised. You know, this is not something that she did, had. <laughs> I'd seen her do to anybody right. else. And I said, and. Which is her name, and uh, and Jumbi said, uh, uh, "No, that's all right." And then he said, "She's doing that because." And then he told me, "You know, she's she's my wife from from."
2: Wow. Yeah,
1: come back.
2: And she felt the erotic connection that was still there somehow. Or well,
1: yeah, you know the, yeah. that. You know there was that, that connection. You know, and and uh, and he recognized you know that and and her and everything. And he named he named her, gave her the name Asun, which means grandmother, um, because actually, I don't know uh, uh, whether in her the previous life. The, the Beaver Indian tradition of marriage is that when you're a young person, young man or a young woman, you marry an elder, uh, who and, and they have a huge amount to teach you. Um, and a, a young man who marries an elder woman, um, you know, she's too old to have children, so he's getting his skills as, as a hunter honed, uh, you know, before he has kids to support kind of thing. Um, but Do so they I,
2: have sexual relationships? Oh, sure. Right. Oh, definitely, definitely,
1: Interesting. definitely. Interesting. So definitely,
2: definitely, older definitely. Uh, women teach younger men mm-hmm. the the ways of sexuality and yeah. vice versa. Yeah, yeah. It's very much like a Taoist approach to sexuality.
1: Well, I didn't know that that yeah. was Taoist as well. Yeah. But, but you know, they are definitely... Um, you know, they do do not have a puritanical view of sex. Uh, the the <laughs> First Nations people would be really Indians, They were, you know, definitely, definitely in, into it. in
2: so, is a, are they open to sexual um, contact outside of marriage as well? Is well, for example, adultery you, a big issue? Uh,
1: it's you know, it's it's you know. In pretty stand, but it, for example, if somebody came from another community, they would, you know, work out, you know, who would someone who <clears throat> might have, you know, have a husband, uh, would, would it be agreed that, the, sh, that she would have sex with him to take care of his sexual needs? Mm. I mean, that
2: was it's part of hospitality, yes, yeah. Now, it's, I know I've read about that in in several anthropological accounts. In fact, we we quote, um, I think it was uh, Nut Rasmussen? Was he one of the early explorers? Yes. Yeah, and he talked about how when they arrived at some of the villages that uh, women were uh, happy to be with them, spend the night with them. And, the, um, and some people have argued that In fact, this was uh, the men essentially prostituting the women.
1: But it was not considered that at all. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. And I think that a lot of the uh, lot of that misunderstanding comes from all kinds of things. And maybe you know, I I put it in the paper, and it was one of the points of discussion at this conference that I've just come from. whether I should share my past life flashback that included that kind of stuff. Um, And I'm not sure whether I will or or not. Uh, I'm going to talk to Jim Tucker. I can't ask Ian Stevenson since he's passed on, Um, but Jim Tucker, who's doing reincarnation research, uh, I'll ask him whether that's, I should include that in this, the new the book I'm working on now. What's the book called? Do you have a working it's, title? It's called "That's My Chair: Rebirth Experience of the Gitsan and hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Is that the Beaver People? Uh, Is that the no, no,
1: no they're the Daneza. Uh, oh. But uh, when I uh, met Ian Stevenson, um, he had been had come up and and was. Uh, had done some, some research with the Gitsan on, on reincarnation, and then he came back down to Vancouver, uh, and went to the anthropology department at, at UBC, um, to find out if there, there was anybody who would be interested in carrying on his work, um, and he was given my name, and I was given his, and, and so we met, and, um, uh, though I'd, I had you know, done this whole thing about reincarnation in, in my, my Ph.D. thesis, I always, had not been aware of his work until mm. I met him. And then see, seeing his very, very careful case-by-case study of, of reincarnation, I was was very impressed. And he, he asked me then, uh, this was not 1984, if I would be willing to do that. I was going that summer already to do something else with the Beaver Indians, and I said, sure, I'd be delighted to to do that with the Beaver. And he asked if I would also do it with the Gitsan because some of the people that he'd wanted to see weren't around. And mm-hmm. and I said, sure, if you know if they would welcome me, I I would be glad to do that. And so that summer I went, um, I went to the Beaver, and um, you know I. These are people that I've known, you know, that had adopted us, you know, uh, 20 years before then. Yeah. But I, I learned a lot about um, a lot of cases that I hadn't, you know, that had ha- that had occurred since then. Uh, um, and I went to all four of the reserves and learned about, you know, a number of interesting cases. Wrote up in um, 23 cases that they they told about, and then I went to the Gitsan, and I went first to. To talk to the the head of the the Gitsan, uh office at that time it was the Gitsan with so um Tribal council or something like that and and asked for permission to go and and interview people and they the Gitsan had a sort of reputation of being you know, um, crusty northwest coast people i wasn 't sure if that, that would be welcomed in but mm, Indeed, you know, the, the, the head honcho said um, for sure and told me about three cases and gave permission. So I went and in, in six days got something like 32 cases of hmm. reincarnation. I mean, rich, rich, rich cases. So, so then, um, as a result, I was hired by the Gitsan and Witsoten. I think that's perhaps why in, as well. Um, the next year to work for them for their Land claims court case and so I worked for them for three years and I so after I'd accepted their their mm, offer to work for them I learned that I'd gotten a postdoc uh, to to study reincarnation and mm. and I'd I'd asked my application was with the, the Gitsan and the beaver but since I was working for the Gitsan and Witsuaten, I uh, I asked Shirk if I could switch it to that and I asked, you know, the Gitsan and then if I could if I could both do the, the Delgamuk research and, and the reincarnation research and they said sure. You know, we it's our we're taking this land claims not just because we've been here thousands of years and are concerned about preserving the integrity of the life forms on our, our land, our traditional territories, but because we have memories of coming back lifetime after lifetime. So that was wonderful to get. get.
2: How, how, in that cultural context, is reincarnation seen as something that happens with everyone and some people just don't remember? Or is it uh, uh, an unusual occurrence?
1: It's uh, not everyone uh, remembers their past life, and that's, that's true both for the beaver uh, and uh, who are also called the Daneysa and for the Gitsan and Watsotan, But it's interesting, they are, uh, are, have some differences in, in their kinds of beliefs, just as the Gitsan and the watsotan have different kinds of beliefs. The, the, the beaver and the watsotan are in the northern Athabascan language family, like mm-hmm. in the Navajo and Apache are in the southern you know, Athabascan language family, whereas the Gitsan are in a totally different language family, unrelated language. They're the same language with the Niska and the Simsen.
2: Hmm. So they, the idea is they came in later from a different part of North America? Or?
1: There, the, the concepts are that you know, uh, there were a lot of people here for, you know, 10, 20,000 years at least in North America and then as as the ice ages you know flowed back and forth people would move into the areas that became Mm -hmm. habitable as the the glaciers receded and um, that's that's what their oral traditions say too Um, and so the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en have been neighbors for thousands of years but speak unrelated languages so they've, they've intermarried but interestingly you know the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en are both salmon people, which mean they have a bigger population than the, the you know, the quote-unquote subarctic arctic uh, Danesa people. And um, both the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en have head chiefs of their matrilines, and, uh, whereas the, the beaver are bilateral and they, they don't have match lines, lines or bilateral lines. Mm. So it there. sounds like they're
2: more of an immediate return. Uh, traditionally, more of an immediate return hunter-gatherer structure, as opposed to the uh, more settled salmon. Coast, yeah, yeah. Exactly. the hierarchical. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And one of the interesting things is for the for the the Dene the beaver. They've had um, a number of shamans that that. Initially predated, you know, white contact, but predicting that the white people would come, there was, you know, that of course there were shamans, um, there were prophets that, that in all kinds of other areas of, of, of and adjacent areas of North America too. Yeah. Um, but one of the interesting things is the Denesä, the Beaver Indians, don't expect the shamans to necessarily come back quickly. Mm-hmm. uh after they pass on they're they're more likely to stay up in the spirit world longer and they can assist and help from that perspective as well
2: um, how, how do they assist by contact with a shaman who who moves into the upper world or the lower world mm-hmm. and can communicate with them
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that when the, when the prophets uh go into a trance and 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 go up into the spirit world they they're shown things, and things are revealed to them by by the by the the ancestors, by the shamans, by the the mm-hmm. grandfathers they call them um, in in the spirit world, mm-hmm. and so they can, can kind of assist in that that domain as well. But uh, the head chiefs of the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en houses tend to come back more quickly it's kind of like the talkus of the of the Tibetans I was
2: going to ask you mm-hmm. if there were connections mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and do, do they do the same sort of um, the thing the Tibetans do where they have objects yes exactly oh really yeah. uh, objects from just so that our a listeners number. know what we're talking about mm-hmm. like they'll have a, a comb or a, a you know some pedestrian object that belonged to this person and then they'll have a whole bunch of other shiny interesting things that kids would be interested in
1: well, you know both both the Telkus and the the Geshe Nunso. It's fancier than that. I mean, they would often have um, um, rosaries, for example, in in the Tibetan tradition from a number of different um, people, uh, but including the the one if they're they're seeking to see who's the comeback of a particular person, right. and if the child you know takes that one and and then uh, they have multiple other objects uh, that. Uh, belonged and If they pick the ones that that were known to have have belonged to a particular telku that's that's seen as indication that that's they're that person come back.
2: Yeah, yeah. and they yeah. do the same thing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, but sometimes it would even be they have a sort of used to have these ceremonial um, clubs that the, the 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 head people would have, and they would put a, an array of them. Uh, and And see which one the child picked, but they but they have uh, similar to lots uh, sometimes a person, a child, a baby is recognized as being the comeback because an, uh, an elder will say where they will come back before they pass on. They'll say, "I'm going to come back to so and so so and so um, s- also announcing what uh, Ian Stevenson calls announcing dreams, someone, a relative of the deceased person, having a dream that that person is coming back. Um, and sometimes, sometimes the dream indicates just, you know, that, that they're coming back and then a baby's born. Uh, and sometimes even, you know, three people will have a, a dream at the same time and then this baby is born. Um, uh, and that's, that's seen as significant as well. There are some announcing dreams for the the beaver as, as well, and then it's the children having all kinds of abilities and precocity and mm. and uh, uh, predilections and talents, you know, like that that young girl who did the the healing ceremony on her her ninety plus year old father.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, in in Ian Stevenson's work, I remember there's an association with. Uh, often a traumatic death and reincarnation. Yes, and that's
1: also true. Um, both for the the beaver, they, they, a lot of the people who come back quickly are the ones that that have had a traumatic death. You know, they've they've they've. Uh, uh, been killed or committed suicide or right. something like that. Yeah, and hit
2: by a bus. Uh,
1: yes, exactly. A lot of times. Beetle accident yeah, kind of thing. And, yeah. and that kind of thing makes it. There's someone's just joining us here, oh. unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, when a person has died uh, that kind of way, you know, the, the Beaver Indians say you know, they, they have a hard time. Getting to the resting place in the spirit world, you know, the, finding the trail to, to heaven is the way they put it. Mm. Um, and so they're 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 around in a sort of more like ghost like state, and 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 come back more quickly. They're reborn quickly. And even though mm, the the prophet dance is, is done whenever anyone dies to help them be able to, to follow the, the trail to heaven, get on it and get to a good rest, the good resting place when a, uh, someone like that is reborn they 're welcomed 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 they 're not you know it's not there 's nothing negative about it right. yeah, yeah yeah and they're they 're raised you know with with uh, appreciation for example, there was one man who um, was very good hunter very uh, he he, sometimes worked for uh, a, a guide who took you know, tourists out to to get a moose or something like that, and he worked for him. And no one's quite sure whether it was intentional or unintentional that he was cleaning his gun or something. But he, when he was out, you know, in the bush with he 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 died from the gun shot wound from his own. Gun into
2: his head, into his forehead, hmm.
1: and wh- this l- little baby was born with a birthmark like that, right. and uh, was welcomed back. I mean, that person was was utterly honored, you know, before his death as well. Uh, and that little boy had this incredible interest in getting on horses. He was really, really talented at it, and uh, he would. He, but it was interesting to see, after he had shown that proclivity, it seemed his parents would, his father would actually kind of leave a saddled horse uh, near the back stoop where he could manage to get on it. <laughs> <laughs> but he did, he sure yeah. did, he sure did. That's incredible. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: yeah. Is, have you seen evidence of schizophrenia in, in the people you work with? or is it culturally reframed in a way that it wouldn't be recognized as that? That's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a leading question really. for us. Really. I'm um, I'm
0: ready to start pretty
1: much any The only... And I'm not sure that I want this in the, uh, the case... Can, uh, but the only case that I... I'm aware of. That it was called schizophrenia. Is my <laughs> Beaver Indian godson, um, and he was born in '64. That first summer, uh, to is the the son of um, my Beaver Indian sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, daughter of the one Sam who had uh, adopted us. Mm-hmm. Um, at At the time, we were totally, totally ignorant of FASD.
2: But, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. Yes,
1: yeah. yes, uh, but and it took many years before the the penny dropped that that uh, he suffered from from um, fetal alcohol syndrome. We, but, but I think he he really does. But he was diagnosed as being schizophrenic uh, by the Western medical tradition, right. yeah. and um, he he was i his uh, mom made me his godmother when he was baby uh and she she froze to death um uh, many years ago um she was mourning the the death of her her brother who who had died uh you know tragically um he was Courting somebody in in another reserve, and there was a drinking party, and somebody hit him over the head with a two by four, and it crashed in his skull, and and he made it back. He hitchhiked back to Prophet River, but his whole whole brain got infected, and he died. And you know she was just devastated, and she went to her sister in law's, um, and there was alcohol there, and at you know one a.m. or something, she. Started to go back to to her home and five children. The youngest of whom was a baby and froze to death. Um, and so her her eldest son, Bobby, um, he was you know placed in 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 foster homes where he was sexually abused. And I th- I felt that a whole bunch of that kind of stuff might have added to to his his.
0: Yeah, his nature.
1: challenges. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, I don't want to use the word pathology, but then he, right. he was in jail for a, a bunch of time for, um, right in Prince George where I live, and and he was so over-medicated that... Uh, then they were sort of changing it from schizophrenia, but he was so over-medicated that he just had a mouth drop and flip-flop f- feet, yeah. and so uh, I talked to the aboriginal... Liaison person at the at the prison, and they set up a meeting. I, I, I'm glad you can edit a whole lot of stuff out uh, with uh, the psychiatrist and the head of the head of the uh, jail, uh, and me, and the Aboriginal liaison person. and And when uh, Bobby came in, he was, first of all, he was very angry because he didn't know there was going to be a meeting and what it was about and everything, but then he proceeded to pull a snake out of his ear, um, which was quite remarkable. <laughs> and Yeah. Uh, yeah. A
2: snake, an actual living snake.
1: Well, there was no, we couldn't see
2: the snake. Oh, but he, I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. So
1: you could kind of see how he would get some what of these diagnoses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and... Uh, they said they wanted to change his medication that there was they, they thought he had um, it was bipolar uh, and there was better there was good medication that would would help with that uh, and he and he said, well, the medication he wanted was you know crack cocaine, and the head of the prison was not he- happy to hear that et cetera et cetera etc cetera. Yeah. but um, the good news is he 's been taking his medication for bipolar, and he has been alcohol and drug free for at least 13 years okay. now, and he's doing well. Yeah, yeah. I think but he is FASD. Is. I mean, he he chopped off his thumb when he was oh. 13 with a with a hatchet. You know, that's one of the things of FASD is not thinking about the consequences.
2: Oh, really? Geez, that's a uh, of your I love actions, an example. yeah, yeah. Have you ever read uh, a book called Black Elk Speaks? Oh, I sure have. Yeah, you know that that book. I read that book. Uh, actually, I wrote an essay about it um, as the writing sample I used to get into Saybrook, where I met Stanley and, and all this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I was looking at for people who haven't read it, it's a classic of American Indian literature, and. Um, this man describes uh, as a child uh, birds speaking to him and feeling that he could control the weather and he has all these
1: well he had a major experience when he was about nine years old out of out of body
2: out of body and then later as well oh, when yeah. he 's off with buffalo bill 's Wild west show in Europe. <laughs> I mean, what a life this guy had. He, when he was, I think, six or seven years old, his father took him up on a hillside, and way down in the valley, they could see a train going through the valley. And his father said, that train has white people on it, and you're going to see those white people are going to keep coming and coming, and in your life, you're going to have to deal with them. And then by the time he was 18, the white people had completely overrun the area. His culture was in a state of collapse and, you know, and he decided the only way he could help his people was to understand the white people. So he joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and went off. And anyway, it's an amazing story. He traveled by train to Chicago, New York, and then on a ship to Europe. Europe. And he got separated from the group in Europe and spent a year or two with some French couple. Uh, took him in, and uh, amazing, amazing,
1: and amazing. then Nyhart coming to find him because he, he had <laughs> yeah. been there at the the uh,
2: it was in Nebraska or somewhere or was it or been, Oklahoma? He,
1: uh, um, he wa- had witnessed uh, uh, the Wounded Knee massacre. Oh, that's why Neihart went to see him.
2: Really? It, yes. Which was seventy-two, seventy-three, something like that. No,
1: it was earlier than that.
2: You're talking. Oh, wait. The, you're not talking about the massacre of uh, with Russell Means and, and those guys. You're talking no, about no. the late 1800s. The yeah. 18. Was it
1: 98 or 92? Right. Was, uh, yeah. 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 It was uh, at the
2: end of uh, the where, of wars where, and
1: where that uh They were going to do. Um, a ghost dance, right? And the U.S. government yeah. had made them they shot outlawed. Shot them down
2: with those um, with
1: big g- machine guns? guns.
2: Yeah, the first machine guns that mm. they were tubes that turned. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and just yeah. you know
1: massacred men, women, and children. And he survived that, but he was a witness for that. Did oh, you know no, that? No, I didn't well, that's remember that.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a think, while since you, I've read it. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, that was that was. Um, why Nyhart went to see him was because he'd heard that he was a survivor of that or a witness of that. Right. And um, but then he he recorded his whole life story, which which Nyhart had been said that that he should tell, which was yeah. I had um, an experience when I was three years old that perhaps relates to my interest in all these kinds of things and, and my, my appreciation of children's early childhood uh, experiences. And um, maybe I'd want to check with uh, Jim Tucker if I should share this too. But, but in, in, that, in that experience, I, it was you know, a beautiful spring morning, and uh, I was out in the backyard... In Iowa City, Iowa, but by, by myself. My brother was in kindergarten, um, and you know the life the, there was just you know sun, life force emanating from the wildflowers, and 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 this rabbit uh, hopped up towards me, and then went over to a, a cherry tree that was in bloom, and went up the cherry tree, and and took me up, and and up into the astral world where I just heard you know this. These wonderful, wonderful sounds look, look, very similar to what um, Black elk describes right. in his his experience uh, he his experience they thought he was he was dying and I they,
2: remember he was in a coma for several days right yes. and he had swollen his arms and legs had swollen, and
1: they, th- and they had, you know, medicine people who ha- had to work on him to make sure that, or you know, because they were, they were afraid they were going to lose him. Yeah, yeah. And mine wasn't like that at all. Yeah. Um, but when I came back down, I had no way of talking about the experience I had. But it's interesting that. I made painting after painting after painting, and my dad asked what, what they were. They're extremely abstract. And uh, I said, the cherry tree is all I said. And uh, he wrote on them, Tony. I was, when I was little, I was called either the whole thing Antonia, especially if I was doing something naughty, or, <laughs> or Tony was my nickname. And uh, so he wrote, Tony, the cherry tree, age three, and saved them. Mm. Yeah, yeah.
2: Do they hold any power for you when you look at them now?
1: Less, less power than... Though they're interesting, and I, I didn't save the whole set, but I've saved two of them. <laughs> uh, they're very, very abstract. Then many, many, many years later, um, there was a, a, a complex fellow... Maybe, Maybe you could take that word out too, but uh, <laughs>
2: oh, complex isn't bad,
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, who it's better than simple seven, yes, really seven arrows. The book Seven Arrows, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Mm. It's it's uh, was he uh was writing it in 1969. He had invited my husband and me to go to uh Cheyenne Sundance, which mm. we did, and um. Then he came and, and wrote this book called Seven Arrows. It was the first book that really portrayed the medicine wheel concept, um, North mm. you know, the North American, yeah, in Native medicine. This was a
2: Rolling Thunder, was it?
1: Mm-mm. Yeah. And um, who Stanley, yeah, has definitely written about very effectively. Um, and what I was saying one time. Um, to this fellow who is noted as the person from his people who had the ability to see people's medicines um, I was regretting that I hadn't had a vision quest and he said you have and when he said that the whole memory of that, that whole experience mm. came back yeah <laughs> so many people would probably be skeptical about it but but I see it as related to to the kind of perception that first nations people think children can have
2: and when you let them have them they do have them right isn't that one of the points of, of ian stevenson's work that in societies like india brazil lebanon different places where he's done work it's societies that don't immediately shut down the child and say oh you're that's crazy that's a dream what that, those are the societies in which this information comes out and, and it 's there you know whether you if you choose to ignore it fine, but that 's mm-hmm. not the same thing as saying it 's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I, I mentioned black elk in the context of schizophrenia is that I remember being so moved by the fact that. Uh, when he was in that coma, he had visions, oh, and yeah. the beautiful way and beautiful huge visions, and, and very ornate, ones. right? Well, yeah. And I remember that the way the the medicine people dealt with that was that when he when he came back and he was lucid again, they, they asked him to describe his visions in great detail. And I remember the vision was it involved four horsemen riding into the village from the four different directions and uh, one uh, different color horses and very very specific and so what they did was they got the whole band together and everybody participated in reenacting the vision that this child had
1: they asked him to share not not right away after he came back you know they concerns about his health and physical, you know, yeah, as well, sure. but that the vision that he had was to be shared and imparted to everyone because it was something that had something to teach everyone.
2: And, and, and they it, honored him.
1: And it was about very much, and it was one of the things that his vision was about was keeping The circle of their knowledge and wisdom together from being
3: broken—that
1: mm. was a huge aspect of it as well. And by sharing his his whole uh, vision and experience, it included some threats of its of its being broken. Mm.
2: Of, yeah, well, the the tribe was facing a lot of challenges, and, yeah.
1: From the, the yeah. from the the settler society in government, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was after that that the, the whole thing ab- about uh, the ghost dance and his beco- uh, becoming, you know, part of that.
2: Hmm. Uh, I'm going to have to reread that that. Oh, book, it's right? an
1: amazing book. I, I yeah. need to reread it too. But it, it was after that that you know he was he was present when um, the the battle at Little Bighorn was that what it was called the the one where almost their people were, no, not it wasn't Custer. Uh, it was when when the, the the military came and 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 shot off all of their 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 guns to to kill the people because they were uh, gathered to to do a, a ghost dance, mm. um, and which had been outlawed, um, and so he went through that you know and seeing all the people decimated then he he experienced a whole lot of uh, different uh, trials and tribulations of his people. You know, the... the yeah. Um, but the vision was important because it showed that, this, that their, their hoop of existence would remain intact despite all these assaults.
2: What, what I found incredibly moving about it uh, about the way the society dealt with his crisis was that they honored it and honored him, and um, showed him such uh, an incredible amount of love and support mm-hmm. by enacting literally embodying his vision so here 's a what eight nine ten year old child who 's had this crisis and he sees everyone he knows enacting his dream honoring him with this compare that to the way we treat someone who has a psychotic break we drug them we isolate them we everything is exactly the opposite we dishonor them. them we institutionalize them we neutralize them we don't want to hear about their visions and dreams it's all unreal it's just shut up stop talking it 's exactly the wrong way to deal with these things, and you know and, and you know much more about this than I do, but there are two types of, of healers in indigenous societies: those who choose to be healers and those who are called to shamanize and the As my understanding is, the more powerful of them is. Uh, are those who are called to shamanize. And the way they're called to shamanize is they have visions, what we would call schizophrenia or psychotic break. And the society says they are able to move between worlds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we support them and we get them through this transition, this difficult period that they're facing, Mm -hmm. they will be of such great use to us. Mm -hmm. They'll save us. They'll help us. All we need to do is get them through the next couple of years... You know, and and then they'll be a great uh, treasure for our society.
1: Really, and one of the things that was you know so impressive uh, with being with the Beaver Indians was the the winter of 1965, 66 I think it was after Christmas. It was probably or after you know the New Year's sixty-six. It was fifty, 50 below for two weeks. It was just unbelievably cold. you
2: spent the winters up there as well.
1: That, that winter, yeah. And we spent two winters up there that year, and then, wow. then my husband had a sabbatical. But um, we were at Prophet River that then, and they asked us, you know, we were the only people with a vehicle. In those days, no one had, had no people, had vehicles. If we would take them down, take these three medicine people and others down to the the place, the reserve where, where the Prophet lived so they could find out from him what was going on. And so we did, we went down to to the Blueberry Reserve where he, uh, Charlie Yahi, the Beaver Indian Prophet, lived and he agreed to do a ceremony and every single person in the whole community came inside one house and sat around the periphery, and he lay down, uh, and we were instructed to be completely, completely, completely still, because you know he he was going to go into a trance, and and everyone had to be completely still so that at the end he would be able to re-inhabit to his back. body, and come yeah. back, you know, because. If there was disturbance, it, it would impede his, his ability to come back into his body. So we, we, everyone, including us, we were utterly, utterly still. And after two hours, you know, he came back into his body, and you know, gradually sort of reintegrated, and gradually sat up, and and told people what the grandfathers on the other side had, had shown him, had told him about what was going on. And, you know, it was profound, profound, profound. I mean, whoa. It's what a contrast to to the kinds of knowledge that the smart Harvard profs I'd had had, you know, this ability to to go, leave leave the body intentionally. And get instructed, get you know, be shown what to to bring back and tell the people. Yeah. Very, very, very impressive. Very impressive.
2: Do do the people you've worked with use hallucinogenic plants at all, or how do they induce trances generally?
1: They they don't. No, they're not like you know. There are a lot, you know, a number probably of probably not much up there
2: in terms of. Yeah, no, and there's I no peyote or mushroom, probably. No. Well, amanita muscaria, perhaps. Mm-hmm. The, the lap people in um, northern Europe use amanita mus- muscaria.
1: What are the... I've, I've forgotten of those ones that are red. With but the white, that's it, yeah. yeah, with the white dots. Yeah. No, I don't really remember. I don't think I've ever seen one growing up there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So so do they use um, rhythm? Is there a musical... Uh,
1: well, I mean, technique. in in you know the the prophet dances are nothing are the dreams that they bring back, and and when those are sung, you know they're they're sung with drums and and it's very rhythmic, uh, you know they they come the songs either have a, a steady beat or mm. a da 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 mm. beat, but no. It was utter silence. Oh. Utter, 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 utter silence. And just, you know, and everyone, you know, honoring his ability. It was different from the, the prophet dances were very impressive uh, as well. But that ceremony he did uh, in in that, the winter cold was, was, was basically just, he, he him agreeing and, and, and choosing to, to, you know, lie down and leave his body,
2: Hmm.
1: and everybody, everybody in the whole community being there, you know, uh, his, his wife was elder to him, wow, she, she passed away when she was 114, Really? yeah, Um, and, you know, all, so there were other medicine people there, but there were, you know, people, you know, of all ages, and, and, he could do it he
2: just did it just turned it on or off or off yeah (laughs) exactly exactly yeah sometimes the, the way to knowledge is to just stop thinking right just stop the voices
1: I mean to have the ability to stop breath like that or you know is is yeah that's that's a a gift that not everyone has
2: have you read the Continuum Concept the the book about child rearing written by the woman who lived it's written in the 70s I think uh it's sort of it seems related to to some of uh what you were talking about earlier it was a a woman I don't remember the name of the author uh she she was traveling in Italy and she met some Italian guys and uh The Italian guys were on their way to Venezuela to go and explore the Orinoco Valley or something. And she sort of on a lark went along with them and uh, met some people there. She wasn't a trained anthropologist, but uh, she decided to stay behind and stay in the village. And she lived there several years. And... I don't remember whether she had a child or whether she was just observing the way they raise children. But she wrote this book about um, how different uh, our relationship with our children is and and like Mm -hmm. having physical contact all Mm -hmm. the time Mm -hmm. and letting the the children um, play with things that we would consider dangerous, um, but let them play with them because that's how they learn, you know, and sort of treating children like. Intelligent people, mm-hmm. as opposed to helpless little, uh, you know, vulnerable uh, animals, and it's a very interesting book. It I, yeah.
1: I, it's, it was mentioned uh, at at this Esalen conference. Oh, really? But uh, I haven't read it yet. Uh, and I'm looking forward to to finding it and getting
2: yeah, into it. yeah, yeah. it's sort of it. She keys off. She doesn't talk about James Prescott, but some of her. Do you know his work with the. Uh, um, He did a meta-analysis of every society for which this uh, information was available in the ethnographic uh, library of of research. And he wanted to understand, is there a connection between the amount of um, mother-child physical contact in, in infancy and early years and um, the freedom of sexual expression in adolescence on one side, and on the other side, the amount of violence within a society. And he found that in every society for which that information was available, the more mother-child contact and freedom of sexual expression there was, the lower the levels of violence were. So sort of supports the idea that Violent societies create frustration and separation anxiety as a way of perpetuating the violence.
1: Wow, and and it was you know definitely definitely true that that the, the Beaver Indians taught me a huge amount about you know protecting uh, you know my first of all, it was Hipali, my first my first child never for example um, we had taken some people somewhere or other when he was uh, six weeks old. Um, and he was sound asleep, and and I left him in in this uh, panel truck, and and we got out and and closed the door, which you had to kind of slam, and you know mm, my my Beaver Indian father was just shocked, and, and because that could could startle. His soul right out of his body, and and you know not being there, and and the same thing about you know if he he ever you know cried, uh, he he would say, must be he hungry, and 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 I would say, well I just fed him twenty minutes ago, you know in the he was born in. In the Beth Israel Hospital in, in, in New York? Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, Boston. Because uh, Harvard Medical Services would not allow you to have natural childbirth. Oh, really? Back then, 67. And uh, uh, they w- only brought you your baby every four hours. That was the standard American practice. You couldn't have your baby with you. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy?
2: It's pretty crazy, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I was... I had been instructed by all this hospital personnel, you know, you feed your, your baby every four hours kind of thing, um, and because he looked scrawny, I would feed him for a whole hour when they brought, brought him out, and then when I think he was two or three days old, they, they said he spit up blood, and I thought, oh, is there some problem with his digestive tract? And they said, no, it's from you. <laughs>
3: Your blood,
1: yes, and and you know you're not really supposed to to start n- nursing for a whole hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Sam would say, "Must be he hungry yeah. if he if he began you know crying a little bit and and you know." Even when I said, well, I just fed him 20 minutes ago, he said, must be he hungry. So I'd, I'd nurse him, and then he'd fall asleep immediately. But just yeah. just that, that comfort of nursing. And so, you know, it was so much better. I mean, I can't believe that our culture instructs us to allow your child to to not be fed, you know, when... Or, you know, you don't nurse them. Uh, but... No, well, it's, it's related to the, the sexuality thing, too. I mean, I remember my, my father-in-law being so embarrassed by my nursing that he would make a point of visually turning away. So he wouldn't possibly see, you know, any suggestion of a breast. It's, it's just a very different world. Yeah yeah and that's changed, of course, you know, quite a bit since then, not as much as it needs to, right. I right.
2: mean, my God, they still you still can breastfeed in lots of parts of the United States, you know, yeah, or they' they've got like little rooms. you have to go to the bathroom or I mean wow. what is the problem? Well,
1: I mean, I was so grateful to have been you know influenced by the 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 beaver Indians because when we arrived in sixty four you know I'd see these women just. You know, openly breastfeeding their their babies all all over the place and everything, yeah. and uh, all that kind of thing. So, so I did the same. You know, in Boston and thereafter wherever, and yeah, got away with it. Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> good, good. Well, listen, I know, I know you've got things to do. You got to go see your daughter and
1: two daughters, two one daughters. son, and three grandchildren. Oh my God.
2: Well, thank you so much for taking time. I, you're very busy. You flew in last night. You're flying out tomorrow. I don't, <laughs> Thank you very much for doing this. Well, I
1: hope this has been useful.
2: Very useful, uh, yeah. I, mean,
1: I, I thought I would be telling you more about specific examples of strong cases of reincarnation among the, the gitsen and Wasotan and Beaver, but oh well.
2: Well, you know, I, I'm... People can read your papers, right? Mm-hmm. They, do you have, sure. you have a personal website? I saw your, you had a university-affiliated website. Do you have yeah. a personal site where people no, can find I papers?
1: I haven't done that, and I haven't even looked to see what's on my the UNBC one, but uh, I'll take a look, and if, it, if there should be more stuff added to it, I'll add it.
2: Okay, good. So people <laughs> can find your, your work if, they, if they're looking Hopefully, for it. Yeah. As far as uh, Ian Stevenson's work, a great place to start there is a book called Old Souls. Do you know that book?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's written by by uh, Paul Schroeder, who went with uh, with Ian to a number of
2: different countries when. Yeah, yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you agree that that's a good introduction to his work?
1: Yes, though I like, um, you know, children who remember previous lives. You know, he's got that book mm. Ian Stevens, and I mean, there's lots of yeah. his work uh, yeah. that's that's really great too. But but maybe Old Souls is a good place, and and Jim Tucker's Life Before Life. That's he Jim Tucker is a psychiatrist, child psychiatrist that Ian hired to, to continue on his work. Oh, and he's doing I a beautiful job of continuing it oh, on. Good. Mm-hmm. Good. You know, he hired him you know, when Ian was still still the the director of the division of DOPS division of perceptual studies is
2: now key. I love that the money came from the photocopier Isn't inventor. not that cute that's so funny yeah <laughs> that's yeah, fantastic no.
1: and yeah. and uh, Bruce Grayson is is the chair uh is the director now and he does a, a huge amount of wonderful near-death experience work mm. yeah so uh, Ian had hired them you know well when he was still there
2: Great. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, thank you very much. You're I, welcome. I'm going to take a picture for listeners. I'm going to take a picture of you right now so they'll be able to see you in this cheesy <laughs> Vegas-like yes. restaurant. Okay, okay. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Mm. Mm. You said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say you're gonna die one day for example i could kiss you just because i want to what's the difference if you turn away i'm gonna die one day why do you waste your time think about your reputation trying to meet an expectation wondering Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about an obligation Running through a confrontation in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground